0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Do Healthy, Be Healthy podcast. I'm Dr. Whited, and I have a wonderful round of anonymous questions submitted by my abnormal psychology class uh, that I teach every summer. So I just looked at my records. This is the fourth year I've done anonymous questions in the summer. Uh, I hope to have a second round uh, here later in the summer. We'll see um, how many many folks submit them. (laughs) Uh, But until then, I'm just going to go through... One by one, and do my best to answer these questions. I like to answer them kind of um, off the cuff, test my knowledge without looking a lot of stuff up. But you know, I usually let y'all know when I pause for a second to um, to look something up or check something, or you know, look into some vocabulary that I might not be familiar with. So let's get started. Question number one. Why is it that some people can experience panic attacks if they've never endured a traumatic event of some kind in the past? It's a great question. So if you don't know what a panic attack is, uh, a panic attack is a kind of a very rapid escalation in um, in uh, stress response um, in the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight system. Uh, and this happens very quickly. So people experience a, a, a range of symptoms um, like their heart beating really fast, um, their are Uh, breathing really fast. They might feel a bit um, dissociated, like they're um, separate from reality or outside of their body. So lots of weird sensations. Um, But it feels like an extreme fear response, extreme stress. And a lot of people will say, you know, I feel like I'm dying, like I'm having a heart attack. Um, And really, this is just the body's alarm system just going nuts and just really kind of flying off the handle. Um, And the reason that people can have this experience without any kind of traumatic event is because these things can happen Randomly, <laughs> I'm sure there's some kind of um, something associated with it. If we look at like what our body's doing that day and what you know stressful experiences we may be having, but um, sometimes these can be uncued. Um, and actually, you know, for people that experience a high number of panic attacks, there's a lot of uncued panic attacks, um, and so they may have those um, with with some kind of frequency in terms of the percentage of the panic attacks they have in a given week, for example. Um, so yeah, so uh, it's not always connected. It's our body's alarm system, kind of throwing off crazy alarms, um, and in a real high, like in a real you know high intensity. Lots of people have panic attacks. It's like sixty-some percent of humans have one in their lifetime, or something like that. Um, so it's pretty common to have one. Uh, panic disorder is when these become a problem, and people start avoiding things because they're afraid of having more panic attacks. Um, so it's not always linked to trauma or anything like that. It's just kind of a Natural human system and and the human stress response that that goes a little haywire and then because we're so afraid of that happening again we start to try to control it and that's you know counterproductive because it ends up making us more feel fear, fearful of the panic and then when it starts up a little bit we are so fearful of it that we kind of accelerate it and make it even worse um, but some, uh, people who get panic attacks tend to have a predisposition for that so they have a little bit of a hyperactive Um, stress response. So there you go. Next question. You can hear me clicking. It's a loud mouse. Uh, What are the most effective treatments for those with addictions and substance use disorders? That is a great question. Um, So my students submitted these questions at the beginning of the semester mostly. So we covered a lot of this already um, because we're about halfway through the summer session. Um, But the best treatments... um, You know, the abstinence-based treatments like Alcoholics Anonymous and and Narcotics Anonymous and things like that, there is some efficacy research on that um, that they might be, you know, that they might work, but they're hard to study because of the anonymity piece. And there just hasn't been a ton of research. Um, Generally, cognitive behavioral approaches work well that look at triggers for substance use, uh, contingency management, which means changing the um, the contingencies around like um, when someone might be exposed to drinking and stuff like that. Um, uh, and those can focus either on abstinence or they can focus on moderation, which is also called, um, harm reduction or, um, there's another name for it that slips my mind, but basically, um, either of those are effective. So it doesn't have to be an abstinence only approach, even though that's kind of what the Alcoholics Anonymous group kind of purports, um, It just depends on the person and what works best for them. So some things might be, you know, of course, trying to reduce the amount of substance used. uh, But also seeing in cognitive behavioral treatment, you kind of want to get a good idea of what purpose, what function that substance use is giving. So, you know, if it's causing, if it's helping with stress reduction, if it's helping with uh, managing anxiety, if it's helping with managing Depression, for example. And of course, you know, they're not very effective ways of managing that. Like, you know, for example, alcohol use. If you're feeling down and you drink some alcohol, you might feel good for a little bit, but probably feel terrible later. Um, and it just becomes this vicious cycle of using the substance to feel better. But then, of course, when it wears off, you're even worse than when you started. Um, so um, identifying those kind of cycles and then ho- helping to interrupt them. So giving people other ways to manage anxiety, stress, social anxiety, or something like that, depending on what purpose the Drug is serving beyond just the um, the uh, uh, high of the of whatever drug it is or the intoxication effects. Um, so those are the most effective. Generally, cognitive behavioral treatments. That's kind of the thing for all of it, <laughs> for for most most uh, interventions. A, a cognitive some combination of cognitive and behavioral strategies are best. What is the likelihood that someone with a history of depression and anxiety develop these illnesses genetically, and how can that be proven? If someone with a history of depression and anxiety showed symptoms of ADHD, how would the medications for these three different disorders be managed, like can you take antidepressants and stimulants simultaneously? I believe you can, to answer that last question. Um, you know, uh, Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, also known as antidepressants, are also the treatment for anxiety, so it's one pill for everything because we don't really have a great understanding of the neurobiology of depression and anxiety. Um, we know a lot about like correlates, but we don't understand how it all functions. But we do know if we increase the availability of serotonin, people can feel a little bit better. Um, usually you want that to be combined with some kind of cognitive and behavioral treatment, uh, because as soon as that medication stops, the problems come back. Um, and they're not really solving the problems that lead to depression or anxiety. They're just kind of helping with the emotional response to depression and anxiety. So if you help someone with cognitive behavioral therapy, where they change the way they think and the thing, the way that they live in order to, um, better cope with anxiety or depression and better you know, basically eliminate its reason for existing in their life, um, then you can get better results. And, you know, medications like SSRIs can be combined with therapy. Um, It doesn't always have a synergistic effect, but it doesn't hurt. Um, And then I believe you can take that with along with um, stimulants. So is it genetic and can that be proven? Um, there's one of the things I really emphasize in my class, um, and again, these were these were submitted before we got deep into the class, so that my students didn't know this yet. But we really emphasize a biopsychosocial or an integrative perspective. So biological, psychological, and social factors come together to influence if and when and how someone develops a mental health issue. Um, The thing is that those biological, psychological, and social factors also influence each other. So our, you know, predilections that's kind of built into our uh, neurobiology um, influence how we behave and how we think. And then how we think also then influences our neurobiology, for example. And of course, the social context in which we exist, the country we exist in, the news that we take in, the friends we have... Um, the place our, the place where we work or go to school, all of those things are social influences that influences how we think and feel and how we behave, which influences our, our neurobiology, which influences the social, the people and the news and the media that we take in. So all of these things interact with each other. Um, the genetic influence on mental health disorders is reasonably low. Um, it's like 20 to 30% in uh, across different disorders um, at most. There are certain ones that are much higher Um, But by and large, especially for depression and anxiety, it's reasonably low. Um, But again, all these things interact. So uh, how can that be proven? We have research on looking at associations between genes and behavior um, and looking at twin studies and things like that is basically how we test it to determine that number that I just quoted, which comes from the text. It's a good text, too. I'm using a different text this year. It's by um, Barlow and colleagues, and Barlow's kind of a giant in the field of psychology. Uh, And I think there's some things I have complaints about, but I think they do a pretty good job of really representing the field pretty well, um, and really representing that integrated perspective, which is so hard to find um, in psychology textbooks. So much of it is like, let's talk about the biological causes and social causes, and they're not independent causes. They interact with each other, and they have a synergistic effect. So it's kind of a silly way to talk about it, but you know, 15, 15 out of 16 textbooks talk about it that way. And I've read most of them and been unhappy with them. Um, so I think Barlow's book is, is pretty good. It's the best I could find. So, uh, Next question. Many of the people my age are smoking marijuana, and I've heard the drug can damage brain cells, but I've never did research on the topic. Do you know if that is true? I mean, everything affects the brain and affects brain cells. I don't think marijuana has a big influence on damaging brain cells, like killing them. Um, And it's hard to like OD on marijuana. Like if you use alcohol significantly for a long period of time, you do damage to the brain. You can develop dementia and things like that. Um, But generally, marijuana doesn't have that kind of effect. Um, In adolescence, though, it can increase the vulnerability to developing schizophrenia so folks who have a vulnerability a genetic vulnerability and uh to developing schizophrenia and some of the um early life experiences especially in utero that put them at risk for developing schizophrenia if they smoke marijuana it's gonna it's going to um, um, trigger that onset and increase the rate of the the age of that onset so really bad for adolescents um but i don't think it it damages existing brain cells Sorry, coffee. Next. Do you find that therapy is a beneficial treatment for those who are undiagnosed with mental illness? Uh, Yes. If they have a problem they want to fix, therapy is helpful. Um, I work a lot. I'm a therapist, for those of you that don't know. I'm a clinical psychologist, a clinical health psychologist. So the clinical piece of that means that I'm trained in doing therapy. Uh, And I do quite a bit of it, mostly through supervising my graduate students who are learning to be therapists as well. So I don't do a lot of direct therapy. I do some here and there, but mostly it's through supervision. Uh, Whether I'm in the room with the patient or not, it's through supervision. Um, And I find that lots of people don't meet criteria for a mental health issue, but they're still struggling with problems with depression, anxiety, or something like that. Um, And they want to be better. Or or coping with ADHD, I see a lot where folks are trying to... who have ADHD and they're trying to like be more organized and successful and, and, and manage their thinking patterns and that sort of thing. So I end up doing a lot of work with folks like that. And the thing is, our treatments for mental health issues don't just need a diagnosis in order to work. Um, they are meant to get at the problems that lead to things like depression and anxiety i keep using those as examples because that's like the most common things we treat right that's like six six percent of the population um and within a given year experiences depression and about six percent might experience an anxiety disorder um so pro- actually probably more than that because there's two anxiety disorders that have a six six percent prevalence around that in and of themselves and that's um Uh, social anxiety and specific phobias, although people with specific phobias don't present to treatment as often, but folks with social anxiety do. Um, So anyway, um, so... I work with lots of people that don't necessarily meet criteria for uh, a mental illness due to the specific diagnostic criteria. Like maybe they're experiencing depression, but not enough or not to a a high enough intensity, uh, to meet criteria for major depressive disorder. But I mean, heck, they're struggling and they would like help. (laughs) Um, so we can use a lot of the same techniques, um, and, and therapeutic approaches with folks like that. Um, and just use, uh, you know, they, they tend to just do better and do it more and make change more quickly because they don't have as many impediments or as, as severe symptoms. So I love working with folks who just want to improve in some specific way um, or get relief from some symptoms that may not meet criteria for a uh, specific diagnosis yet, but, you know, probably are on their way there without intervention. Next question. Are some people born with anxiety slash predisposed to developing PTSD and anxiety? I have read about how anxiety and PTSD are usually developed during life and altered by environment. However, is it possible to have a chemical predisposition to being born with these issues as opposed to developing them?" Uh, No, no one is born with anxiety or PTSD, Um, but people do have a predisposition. So again, it's only about 25% of the variance uh, in developing a mental health issue. is um, is genetic, basically, um, or or less? <laughs> so it's not it's not a very high piece of that. So you have to have life experiences, and they could be early life experiences, they can be middle or later life experiences, but you have to have life experiences that play on those vulnerabilities um, or that genetic predisposition uh, in order to develop the issue. So no, some people are a little more cautious and le- and less risk averse you know, early in life, and they're kind of seem to be kind of wired that way. But that I wouldn't call that anxiety, and I wouldn't call that PTSD. Um, And certainly, those folks aren't necessarily more likely to develop PTSD or anxiety. Um, So people can be a little less approach oriented, um, kind of characteristically, like trait like when they're when they're very young. Um, And we see that in infants, you know, with different kind of patterns of interacting with the world and things like that. Um, But that doesn't necessarily constitute um, an anxiety disorder. Next question. After watching one of the videos pertaining to multiple personality disorder, I've grown an interest with how people are able to just flip and switch personalities so fast. That's not a question. Uh, So cool. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm not a big believer in dissociative identity disorder, which is the modern term for multiple personality disorder. Um, you know, it's super duper rare, hard to study. And a lot of times we see therapists kind of suggesting that that might be the case. And so they may be kind of creating it and taking someone who has usually a very traumatic early life history, uh, and is very vulnerable to suggestion and then making a suggestion about that, um. And things like that. So we do know that people who have very traumatic early life experiences do tend to dissociate because um, it's the only response they have as a kid. So they just kind of separate themselves from their from reality. And sometimes that may lead to things like dissociative identity disorder. So I think it's I don't think it's not real, but I do think that it oftentimes since we know about it and it's 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 out there in the popular culture and people are aware of it, that sometimes it's introduced when that's not really exactly what someone's experiencing. But they're very suggestible and very kind of don't have a very strong sense of self because they've had to kind of avoid that experience of being themselves um, due to significant trauma. So, Next question. How can you tell the difference between someone when someone is suffering from depression or just going through a rough time? Great question. Um, so technically, if someone meets criteria for a major depressive episode, meaning they have A depressed mood most of the day nearly every day and or anhedonia uh, which is a lack of interest or lack of pleasure in the things that they typically enjoy um, most of the day nearly every day so that's that and then a constellation of other symptoms other criteria for a major depressive episode but it has to be for two weeks or more so if I'm giving you a technical answer when it comes to diagnosis um, is that person depressed or just going through a rough time if they look depressed per the criteria I just mentioned, and it's been two weeks or more, then they would meet criteria for a major depressive disorder, which is what most people mean when they say, are they suffering from depression? Like clinical depression is the other kind of slang term I hear for it. Um, uh, but, you know, <laughs> uh, a lot we go through rough times. That is a normal part of being human. Being human means we experience anxiety. Me- being human means we experience depression not everything's all fun sunshine and roses we can't control that we're supposed to experience all those feelings right well the problem is when those feelings are just like stuck around and there's nothing causing them um as much there's there's not as much causing them anymore so for uh, gr- grieving is kind of the best example when we lose a loved one uh, and we, we go through a grieving process, right? It's not a process in terms of like, oh, there are stages and everything. It's just like that grief hits you, and it sticks with you, and it's real bad at first, and then it kind of, the grief part kind of fades away, and hopefully then when we reflect on our missing loved ones, we do that with you know, a sense of joy and thinking about the things that we enjoyed with them. And occasionally still, even 30, 40 years down the road, right, we get that pang of grief and sadness and, and, and that sort of thing when we think of loved ones. That's kind of normal, right? You know, life, life hits you and life hits you hard. And remembering that <laughs> um, and feeling bad about it is fine. But when, when it really sticks around for a long time and the person's really struggling to um, get through what happened with an event and they're feeling very depressed about it, um, then it might be time to see someone and get some help about it um, to help overcome that. So it, there's not a fine line between it. If we're talking from a diagnostic standpoint, it's that two week thing. But um, but in general, there's not like a fine like before this is not depression. After this is depression. Um, but we do need to give ourselves time to adjust to bad things that happen. It could be the loss of a job, a divorce, any any major life event, um, especially negative ones. But any major life event really can result in us feeling down for a period of time. And so we need to give ourselves time to kind of naturally push through that and work through it and get used to a new normal. And it's normal then, honestly, it's normal to have feelings of depression for periods of time when something like that happens. Um, But when that doesn't start to resolve and when the things that someone tries to do that normally work don't resolve it, then it might be time to see someone to get some help with that. Next question. At this time, I do not have any specific questions about mental health. Oh, well, this one's easy. They're excited about the class, though. That's what they go on to say. Me too. I'm glad to to hear that. (laughs) Do you think trauma as a child can lead to diseases such as dementia? Um, No. I don't think that there's really a connection between trauma and dementia, uh, unless that trauma is somehow... Causes like brain damage in some way then someone might develop dementia earlier I mean we will all develop dementia eventually if we live a really long time (laughs) When we diagnose you you know our memory will go and things like that Um, And our memory does and things like that and functioning naturally does get worse over time when we age Um, but if someone has like brain damage earlier in life, then, you know, usually we can compensate for the changes over time, especially in older adults, you'll see this. They, they have ways of compensating for like their memory, not being as good. It becomes a a dementia that we would, um, um, start to worry about and be concerned about medically and psychologically, uh, if it happened kind of earlier and more severely than that to where it impairs someone's functioning to a great degree. Um, so if that if, if the trauma as a child was literal physical trauma, then maybe. But I don't think there's a connection between experiencing traumatic events as a child uh, and the development of dementia unless other factors are at play throughout life that cause um, kind of a physical problem that, that could lead to earlier dementia. Neat question. Neat question. I like that one. What are some of the most common symptoms that people with mental health or behavioral disorders display? So that's going to be depression or anxiety. So I already described major depressive episode. Um, anxiety, I, I want to talk a little bit about this, and I figure I'd, at some point I'd make an excuse to do so if someone didn't ask me directly. But people talk a lot about having anxiety. When it comes to diagnoses and within psychology, especially in psychiatry, um, anxiety is not a disorder. There is no disorder called anxiety. So when someone says, I have anxiety, it's like, yes, you are human. All humans experience anxiety. Anxiety is a feeling that we have and it's that forward-reaching feeling where we are you know, worried, concerned, um, or fearful of what's gonna happen next, okay? That's in contrast to fear and fear itself is a more visceral kind of like older brain parts <laughs> feeling that's very immediate. Like I am under threat and terrified. Um, and sometimes, you know, those things are mixed together. You can see me use some of the words in, in either definition. Um, but anxiety is the one but, that people experience the most. So we're su- supposed to experience some degree of anxiety, worry, uh, and concern about things that are about to happen. So anxiety like around our performance on any given task or, or something like that. That's kind of normal. If it gets in our way and, and really kills our functioning, then it's something to, to, to be concerned about and looked into. And the reason I say this is because I don't want people to feel like, oh, I have anxiety, so I can't do stuff. Um, the, when I hear the sentence, I have anxiety, so I can't, and I see this a lot on social media uh, and things like that, that's really a misunderstanding of how anxiety works. Um, so when we have problems like that, the best thing to do is to try to do whatever comes after the word can't in that sentence. Um, and you don't want to say, you know, I have anxiety, so I can't, you know, dive off a 300 foot cliff. Yeah, of course not. That'd be stupid. Um, but if you're afraid of heights and have anxiety around heights, then jumping off a one foot cliff might be the place to start, right? Um, for example, so you don't want to throw yourself into a situation that you know you can't handle, uh, but you do want to throw yourself into easier situations so you can build yourself up to that one that you can't handle. So when you hear yourself saying, I have anxiety, so I can't, figure out how you can expose yourself to whatever comes after can't in small and workable ways to build yourself up so that you can. Um, And so this question gets at the common symptoms and so usually anxiety is focused on a specific thing. It might be social. It might be a certain uh, a certain thing that, that we have a phobia about, like flying, heights, certain animals or insects, certain medical procedures, all that kind of stuff. Um, it might be health anxiety, worry about our health or something that's wrong with us or wrong with with someone else. Um, it might be generalized anxiety, which is which is a stupid name for it. It should be an even stupider name, but you know, I came out with it, so it's stupider, chronic worry disorder, where the worry itself is problematic, and people just chronically worry, worry, worry so much that they're keeping their body kind of aroused and excited and in a negative way, an unhealthy way, and stressed in a negative way. Uh, So uh, when it comes to these anxiety symptoms, they're usually focused on something. Not just anxiety in general, if I experience anxiety, but anxiety that's focused on something. Uh, And so for me, the most common ones I see people focused on are health, because I'm a health psychologist, so on their health, <laughs> or someone else's health, um, social uh, anxiety, or, or what used to be called social phobia, so they have a just a chronic fear of social situations and being negatively evaluated, especially in social situations. Um, so those are the two anxiety ones I'd say I see the most. I see a bit of panic disorder, which isn't as common, but is a really good one. Um, to treat, actually, you can get really good results treating that. Even though it feels, it, it can be very debilitating. Get great results with treatment. Um, so yeah, so those I'd say are the most, um, the most common symptoms that people with mental health or behavioral disorders display. Some type of depression or anxiety focused on a specific thing. Next question: I've recently heard someone say that being gay is a mental illness. It's not. Uh, spoiler alert. Uh, They said when someone believes that they hear voices in their head, we say they have a mental illness and are treated for that. Person said that being gay was the same thing. What are my thoughts on that? Well, this person is ignorant and maybe a bigot. Um, I don't know. Um, So uh, maybe they're accidentally a bigot. You know, which is okay. Like, like ignorant people who are ignorant about something, um, and just because they haven't been exposed to it yet or learned about it yet. Uh, I can kind of forgive that. But people who are ignorant about something and have been exposed to knowledge and, and, and the truth about things and science and things like that, I don't really like those people and think that they should just be quiet because they don't have anything useful to say. Um, so being gay is not a mental illness. Being gay is the way that people are. <laughs> um, and, uh, our book does a great job. i really enjoyed this psychopathology book by Barlow that talks about this because there, there are biopsychosocial influences that, um, determine people's sexual orientation. A lot of that is their early life experience, their biology, uh, and things like that. Um, and, uh, that is what, you know, creates someone's sexual orientation. And that's where, you know, we, we, uh, where people who are gay come from. Um, so it's not something that people have control over. It's not something that is changeable. People tried to do conversion therapy for a long time. Um, and it was very bad, very, very bad for gay people. Um, so conversion therapy was trying to basically turn gay people straight. Um, usually this occurred within a very fundamentalist religious organization or, or sect. Um, but there was some, um, some work done by like legitimate mental health care people trying to do this. Uh, and they involved a lot of different things, but the, one of the key pieces was like uh, masturbating to an image that slowly changed into the image of the opposite uh, gender instead of the same gender. Um, and um, basically, you know, punishing them for any kind of um, gay thoughts or attractions or things like that. And basically trying, basically the whole point was try to get someone to deny who they are. Um, and none of it worked. Uh, and a lot of people died by suicide because of this, because they were basically getting the message that who you are is wrong, it's a disorder, and you should fix it, and here's how you should fix it. So... Um, whoever this person was speaking to that said being gay is a mental illness is 100% absolutely wrong. No modern um, mental health um, group, I'm thinking like psychologists, social workers, you know, no modern mental health group thinks that they are all very welcoming to, um, to people based on their sexual orientation. They understand that folks of varying sexual orientations, so not just gay and straight, but everything in between, Um, should be valued and cared for and validated. um, And there is nothing wrong with that at all. So those are my thoughts on that. Great question. I love that question. Glad someone brought that up. Next one. So far, I've highly enjoyed the course and all it has to offer. Oh, that's good. In the short time, I already learned new things about mental health and different disorders. I do not have very many questions yet. The only question I have right now that I can think of is when it comes to naturalistic observations in lab data, how can we decipher which observation is more reliable or does it depend on the topic that's being studied? So, um... So, this refers to something in, uh, in uh, my psychopathology class, where uh, we're talking about different ways of gaining knowledge about psychopathology. Uh, and one of the ways is through naturalistic observation. So, this is like going way back to Piaget, who um, made some theories about children by observing them on a playground probably wouldn't work real well today, but, um, uh, and so, you know, the problem with naturalistic observation is that it might not be, um, rigorous enough to mean it's reproducible. And we don't, you know, humans are very, there's a lot going on inside of humans. There's a lot of internal <laughs> behavior, right? All our thoughts, feelings, etc all we're seeing are how they're acting. Uh, so the problem with naturalistic observations is uh, if we're drawing conclusions about what people are thinking inside by just observing what they're doing outside, probably not good. But if we're just making conclusions about how their behavior pertains to later behavior and other things, then it's just fine. Um, same with in-lab data. If we bring, uh, for example kids in and have them interact with certain toys and we're kind of monitoring like what they do and how different types of kids interact with different toys and how they might interact with their parents and each other, you know these are all observations. So, Um, to make observations reliable, one of the things that are, that is done in these studies, uh, is to create a coding program, a coding scheme. So for example, if we're talking about, um, uh, kids in a lab playing with toys, it's like, how often do they approach each toy? How many minutes do they spend playing with each one? And there are people who would would be observing or watching videos, um, and noting the number the amount of time they spend with each toy, for example. Let's make it simple. Um, this would probably be uh undergraduates who want to get research experience so they recruit them in and teach them coding scheme um and then have them watch the same videos. And here's and that's an important piece of it. So if you have three under three undergraduates who are getting awesome research experience by watching, you know, fifty videos of kids playing with toys and timing how much time they spend with each toy. Um, then you would have each of those undergraduate students overlap in what videos they watched. And then you would calculate the concordance rate to make sure that they're getting about the same amount of time played with each toy uh, when they watch the same video. So if if, you know, undergrad A and undergrad B watch a video number one, they should have about the same ratings. And that's how you get good reliability on observational data. You create coding schemes, you make sure that those coding schemes can be taught, and that everyone can use them very similarly. And then you make sure people get the same results with them. And that kind of is applied to a bunch of different ways of research where we don't necessarily have an objective measure um, of what's going on. We have to, we have to use people <laughs> using a system to get... Uh, a reliable way of of, um, of getting data. So that's how we do it in a nutshell. Cool question. Next question. Since we just watched a video about DID or MPD, so it's dissociative identity disorder again, I watched the movie Sybil when I was in high school and later found out that it was discovered that she faked having multiple personalities. Mm-hmm. Do you think that she was forced to pretend or you think that maybe she had something else going on? I personally believe that she just had to be going through something to be able to pretend for so long, just wondering what your thoughts are on the topic. Um, so I don't, I mean, I don't know. Um, I don't, I don't know the truth of, of Sybil. I haven't really looked into that, but let's just, I'm just going to assume that what this person's saying is true. Um, and I would say she probably wasn't deliberately like, she probably believed it to some degree. Um, but at the same time was again, very someone who had endured a lot of early trauma uh, and so it was very suggestible. So maybe Sybil doesn't feel like this was you know truly, um, truly her, and she was forced to pretend. But probably a piece of it was. Um, um, Felt, felt true at times. Um, but then overall, someone who's very suggestible, it's hard to say like, did they make it up or not? <laughs> um, did they deliberately make it up or not? Uh, because they're kind of taking in what someone suggests or orders them to do, and then just doing it straight forward. Um, and that's again, due to very significant and severe early life trauma, that's what people have had to learn to do to survive. So they're really just going on their survival instincts. Um, and I don't want to put it don't want this to sound like, um, she was doing something nefarious. So it was being forced to do something nefarious, um, and, and chose to do something nefarious, uh, because I don't think that someone with, uh, the type of significant trauma that results in anything close to the associative identity disorder or that level of suggestibility or anything like that, um, that anything close to that is, um, uh, is chosen. So yes, I think she had to be going through something to wanna do something, to, to be able to pretend like she did because I think part of it was kind of real to her. But I'm speculating there, obviously. Oh my, oh, we've got a three-parter coming next. All right, let's see what I can do. Um, not exactly mental health related for my first question, but I have a few. Okay. Is there any researchers, d- d- any research de- detailing stimulus-response pairs that are created in individuals with DID. Uh, More specifically, is there any research that has been conducted detailing whether or not individuals with DID can transfer new SR pairs unconsciously between personalities or if each personality has its own specific distinct SR um, that have been accumulated over time and that the personality in question was pretending? And further, do new personalities harbor specific SRs that have been selected across The other personalities, are they taken in full form, the original identity at birth? Um, So this is a good question. I don't know the answer. (laughs) Um, I believe the book, you know, because dissociative identity disorder is so rare, it's not very well studied. It's not something, so it's not something we have a lot of research on, for one. Second of all, it's so rare, I've never met someone with it. I've also worked in less severe, like I don't work in a lot of severe inpatient settings and haven't over my training and, and history. So I know a lot more about depression and anxiety clearly than this. So this is a good question. I do believe there was some transfer of stimuli. So if you taught one personality a bunch of word pairings, um, then the next personality wouldn't necessarily report remembering those word pairings, but, but they would their reaction time would would kind of show that on some level they had seen those pairs before in order to respond so quickly and learn them so quickly. I believe that was in your book or something like that. I believe I've read something like that elsewhere. So, um, so yes, uh, I don't know all the specifics of that question that I could answer. <laughs> it's a good question, though. All right, second question by this person. Uh, what does exposure therapy look like for individuals with OCD? Oh, great question. I know we talked about panic attacks, and the textbook gives a little more in-depth how this works. But in your experience, what practices have you utilized in this setting and how effective were certain practices over others? So there's only one practice I would recommend for treating OCD, and it's called exposure with response prevention. Um, or EXRP is, the, is one uh, acronym for it. So in exposure with response prevention, uh, well, in OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, you have obsessions and you have compulsions. Um, The obsession is what usually whatever thought or something that someone gets really stuck on, obsessed with, so to speak. Um, And then the compulsion is what they do to get rid of that obsession. So for example, if someone is having obsessions about cleanliness, which is one of the kind of characteristic things within OCD, Everyone with OCD is different, but it's the one that we people tend to think of the most. So if they're having thoughts about like, oh, my hands are so so dirty, what have I touched? What have I done? Um, I need to wash my hands. So the obsession is with germs and cleanliness um, and dirtiness. And so the compulsion then is hand washing. And usually that hand washing would take a very specific form, um, a specific way of rubbing the hands together, a specific type of soap, and it usually gets more and more specific over time if it's not, um, if left to kind of untreated or unintervened upon. Um, So when you do exposure with response prevention, you do exposure, which means the person is exposed, they experience um, the feared situation, um, and then the response prevention is preventing the compulsion. So you expose them to the obsession, and you prevent the compulsion. Now, of course, this is something that you do with a person collaboratively, right? <laughs> um, you, you know, they agree that, you know, they don't want to have these, these OCD symptoms anymore. Um, and they at least understand the rationale of why exposure would work. So you do this collaboratively. When I say prevent, I don't mean like, you know, tape their hands to the chair so they can't wash them. <laughs> I mean, you get the person to agree, okay, we're going to think about this obsession, really think about the dirtiness Um, Really think about, you know, what did I touch today? When was the last time I washed my hands? What have I touched since I last? So you really kind of, you have them lean into the obsession. You want to kind of make it uh, pretty bad. (laughs) Um, So they're really focused on the obsession, right? Um, And then have them agree that they're not gonna wash their hands. And sometimes you might, in this specific example, you might do things to help stimulate the thinking. So have them stick their hands in dirt or rub the bottom of their their shoe or something like that. So they really start to, you know, it really gets the obsession going because you want that to kind of be going as strongly as possible. Because what you're trying to do is create an experience for this person where they realize if the obsession keeps going, eventually it fades. The anxiety surrounding that obsession, eventually it fades without having to wash the hands. That's the learning you're looking for. You're also looking, that, so that's one type of learning, that's more habituation. The other type of learning you're trying to get is expectancy violation. So if someone is like, if I don't wash my hands, I'm gonna get sick and then I'll vomit and then I'll waste away and die. Um, and so you really have them lean into that. Okay. What's the probability that you'll, if you don't wash your hands, when we do this exercise that you'll vomit and they'll be like, Oh, it's like 30%, like 30 to 50, like 50%, 50%. Um, what's the probability that you'll waste away and die if you don't do this? Oh, probably like 25%. So you get them to write down these probabilities and really know what these probabilities are because then you get maximum expectancy violation when they don't throw up or they don't die or they don't get sick. Um, and then you can have them look back at it. You said it was a you know, 50% chance that you'd vomit. Did you vomit? No. So what did you learn from this? Well, maybe I'm not going to vomit. Um, and this, this happens repeatedly. <laughs> no one learns this after one attempt. Remember, these obsessions and compulsions can be happening you know, 20, 30, hundreds of times a day, depending on what kind of uh, severity and what kind of obsessions and compulsions a person has. So this could be going on a lot. <laughs> um, and so you know, you're know you not just gonna unlearn it with one trial. It takes a lot of trials. Um, but you get good results with it and it is uh, a very strong treatment. So exposure with response prevention, that's what I would do. That's what it looks like in general. I gave an example for one type of problem, but you would use you know the similar strategy for different types of problems that someone's experiencing with OCD. Great question. Last question by this very curious person. Uh, what is your take on the increase in addiction or rather dependence via discontinuation syndrome to SSRIs by newer generations? What impacts, if any, could this have on a micro and macro level? And do you foresee or have you seen any steps being taken to curb this or minimize potential impact based on the statistic that SSRI use has increased 35.2% from 33.3 million to 45 million percent from um, 33300000 to 45000000 Over the last six years, so I'm not familiar with that statistic. I knew that use went up. I I hadn't really like looked at specifically how much. Um, You know, SSRIs don't necessarily have um, an addiction or withdrawal. Um, uh, They do have. I mean, there are you know withdrawal symptoms in the sense that you can't stop SSRIs cold. You need you need to titrate them down. Um, But there isn't uh, like it's not addiction in the same sense of like drug dependence and that sort of thing. Um, so uh, so that's a little bit different than like, you know, like cocaine, heroin, nicotine, caffeine, that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, but, you know, seeing this increase, what is the impact of that? The, overall, the impact of SSRIs uh, is more uh, due to the side effects that people get, especially the sexual side effects and weight gain and and some other things that that some people can find intolerable. Some people also say that they feel, you know, numb when they take them because it dulls their, and they just don't like the way they feel. So that's um, the biggest reason why people stop taking them. Um, but in terms of the potential impact, you know, all SSRIs are studied uh, two years It's probably the longest follow up in most uh, randomized clinical trials. Obviously, we observe people who are taking SSRIs for longer. Um, and there hasn't been a whole lot of population level data showing a lot of negative impact of SSRIs. Um, again, that might be flying under the radar because we don't have long follow-ups on actual randomized trials. We only have these follow-ups in these observational studies. Um, but So I don't really know. Uh, I used to be pretty negative about SSRIs because uh, I was worried about their influence on heart disease because they do impact heart rate variability. Um, but in the long run, they might actually be decent for heart disease because if you remove depression, people start to take care of themselves better. So, so, you know, the fact that they reduce depressive symptoms and allow people to take care of themselves better may overwrite, like over uh, be stronger than any negative influence they directly have on the cardiovascular system. Um, but honestly, we really don't know. Um, so they've been around for a long, long time, but at the same time, we don't know the population level impact. Um, but we do know that through therapeutic interventions you can get the same effect as ssris or better um so you know my thing is if people are on ssris they should think of that as like a temporary solution and after like six months or maybe even a year you want to be getting off of them so what are you going to do in the meantime to be able to get off of them um and a lot of times that's therapy but it may be other things that someone can do for themselves that help Um, And sometimes SSRIs, you just got to weather a really crappy time in life that's (laughs) leading to some depression or anxiety. Um, And then once things change, you can get back on track. Um, But by and large, if someone gets on an SSRI, I think they need to think about like, what am I going to change? What is this going to help me change um, so that I won't need it anymore? Uh, Because again, we don't know the long-term impacts really well. Great questions. I like curious people next one. We've got, we've got like four or five more. How can you tell when your mental health or the mental health of a friend or family member is beginning to decline? The past couple weeks have been a bit stressful and I noticed a lack of energy increase in acne and just an overall unwillingness to converse with anyone. How far ahead do you think you can detect and prevent a mental breakdown? Well, um, great, wonderful question. I think I answered a little bit of this earlier in talking about, um, uh, like getting treatment without having a diagnosis. Um, but, but I can expand on that here. Um, so this is the tough part, right? And uh, this person's asking kind of like, am I just experiencing a difficult time? And of course I don't know this person. They're not my patient. So I can't make any comments specifically about this person, <laughs> but I can comment in general about people who may be experiencing things like this. This is a good early warning sign for like okay I'm I'm experiencing stress to a level that is starting to impact me. We all experience stress m- pretty much all the time, um, but a lot of stress is good stress. We learn from stress. Stress is a stress causes our bodies to mobilize our resources, get shit done, and then move on to the next thing. But when we notice things like. Um, physical responses like an increase in acne—that's um, a thing. Um, uh, I notice in myself increases in like pain and muscle stiffness. Also, when I'm stressed, I tend to exercise less, so you know I'm not as not a, doing as much stretching and stuff like that. So again, like we see those things start happening, right? Then we know okay, I need to get I need to nip this in the bud to, you know, basically I need to get on top of this by making some changes. And sometimes that's changing the stressor. Sometimes it's changing how we take care of ourselves. It's amazing how like um, helpful a little, a good walk and some exercise are, at least for me, um, in terms of like, you know, taking a break from all the work that's stressing me out. And that allows me to go back to work and I'm probably more efficient with that work. So I'm not really losing time by doing it, even though I tell myself, I don't have time to go for a walk with my dogs. I really do. If I just go and do it, then I come back and I, the, the, you know, 20, 30 minutes I spent walking, um, is saved in how quickly I can get my work done with a little bit of a mental breath of fresh air, so to speak. Um, so that's the thing to look at. Um, an unwillingness to converse with anyone is something that this person mentioned. Uh, that is a really good indicator. So if we are, you know, everyone's introverted and extroverted to different degrees, but everyone likes people. People who are very introverted just only like people to a certain amount, and then they value their alone time. People who are super extroverted want to be around people and interacting with people all the time. And we're all somewhere on that continuum, right? But everyone generally, um, you know, barring other mental health issues, uh, enjoys spending time with people who are enjoyable to spend time around for whatever reason. And so when we start to be like, Oh, and I don't feel like going out with friends, I don't feel like doing this. Um, One of the things I do is kick myself in the ass and just go do it, (laughs) especially when I get an invite, right? Um, Because I know I'm going to enjoy it once I get there. I'm just like not feeling it in the moment. Um, but I will feel it if I go. And what happens is if we start avoiding that, then there's like, oh, I don't feel like doing that. Oh, I'm tired. And then we're like, okay, I didn't go. And then we you know, usually do something where we feel just as crappy. It doesn't make us feel better. Um, but we do feel a little bit better in the sense that we avoided the stressor. Like, oh, it's going to be stressful to go hang out with people. Oh, I don't feel like it. Mm. Um, I'm that that's my internal monologue sometimes. So I'm not, I'm not talking, I'm not trying to poke fun at this person. That's my own internal monologue. Um, but, and then when I decide I'm not going to go, it feels better. Cause I'm like, Oh, that's cool. I don't have to deal with people. But then I do like, fuck all that's actually helpful to me. <laughs> yeah. That's a time when I spend time, I do like extra work that, you know, takes me an hour, I probably could have done it in 20 minutes on a good day, you know, and, and crap like that. When I should just go hang out with my friends, have a good time, uh, that boosts my mood. And even though I don't feel like it, generally when I get in there and I start chatting, these are people I know, things are fine, right? Um, so that unwillingness to converse with anyone is kind of a, a harbinger, a warning that says things are going to get bad if I don't get, get a hold of this. Um, so that's, that is the... Um, that is how to tell that things are not going so well. Now I don't think this is mental health on a decline, as in you're you know someone is turning toward a diagnosis and like that kind of thing. Like if I'm feeling less social and and kind of blah, I don't think that means that I'm turning toward depression, but it does mean like you know this is something that I don't enjoy feeling this way. Uh, and the way to kind of get out of this funk I'm starting to fall into is to do the opposite of what my mind is telling me to do. So if my mind is telling me don't hang out with friends, just stay home, you know, close yourself off and be quiet, you know, be quiet and alone, then I'm gonna act the opposite because that it's not making me feel good to be reclusive. Um, so I'm gonna act the opposite. Now sometimes there's just like, this doesn't really happen to me, but I, there could be a time when there's like people, people, people all the time, and I got, I'm going from one thing to person, it's people everywhere, people, people, people. Um, I need some alone time, right? That is actually a good time for me to pick up some alone time, right? I wanna go back and have more fun with people, but I've kinda, I'm have kind of i kinda tapped out right now. So I need some alone time, I need to do something quiet and peaceful that I enjoy doing, then I'll be regenerated to go and, and hang out with people. So I always think of those as, you know, Um, restorative activities they fill your batteries you know if you do if you're doing stuff that drains your batteries you want to do stuff that fills your batteries and what may be battery filling and battery draining can change at any given point in time and I just gave the example of how hanging out with people could be battery draining (laughs) or battery filling if my battery fills drained and I don't want to hang out with people I probably should because it'll probably be battery filling especially if I haven't been hanging a lot hanging out with people a lot lately but if, my, um, if I've been hanging out with lots of people lately and my social battery is super drained, then it's time to get some alone time. Act the opposite. Get some alone time and then be refreshed. My battery's filled. I can go do more people stuff. Um, I feel like that when I go to conferences and see all my friends and colleagues who I haven't seen in a while And I'm taking in all this science and going to all kinds of talks It's real tiring and I need to have a day in there in the middle where I just like go for a walk by myself <laughs> And maybe I miss out on hanging out with a colleague I haven't seen for a little bit But I just need <laughs> a little bit of time to myself and Then I come back and then the next day I'm, I'm ready and raring to go again um, So those are the things to keep in mind, you know, if you feel yourself feeling blah oh, and notice your body acting a little blah, then it's time to change some things around um, to the extent that you can control it uh, and um, recharge those batteries. Good question. All right. I have heard that Focalin is a popular medicine for ADHD. How exactly does this medicine help with ADHD, and what exactly does it do? I have no idea. Let me pause. I'll go look it up. Alright, I looked it up. So this is called Focalin, I mispronounced it, (laughs) Uh, and Focalin um, is uh, just like so many other ADHD drugs, it probably works on slightly different um, neurotransmitter receptors, Uh, you know, the differences between every little drug isn't something I keep in my head. I remember, I'm not a prescriber, so I don't, I have to know what all these drugs are and what they do, but not the minutia of what differentiates each one. So, Focalin is a stimulant. Um, It is a um, it has methyl in it, so it's one of the (laughs) one of the typical so dexmethylphenidate. So, a slightly different um, arrangement of molecules of the molecule than in methylphenidate, Um, and so. This is a stimulant, uh, and that's what we use with ADHD. Why does that work? We're not 100% sure. The leading theory is that you know, the folks with ADHD, their brains are understimulated, so they seek stimulation, and so providing a, a, a neurological stimulant helps um, with focus uh, and things like that in a way that goes beyond the way a stimulant helps with focus for your average person without ADHD. So that's what it is. It's another one of those. It's probably just the one you've heard about a lot. Um, maybe it's newer and is getting prescribed more often, or maybe it works a little better in certain situations. Not really sure, don't know about it, but that's, uh, that's what it is. So it, it works just like almost every other ADHD medication does. That's a new one. I'm going to dig further into that some other time. Next question. How does the current shift toward more digital options for mental health, such as video calls with therapists or telehealth appointments with a psychiatrist, affect the quality of patient care in comparison to the traditional in-person treatment? Great question. So I think for the most part, if someone is getting exactly what they would get if they were in a... Coming into the office, then things work pretty close. Um, there's it's, it's it might be a negligible difference, but it pretty pretty close in how well it works. So me doing therapy with someone coming into my office, or me doing teletherapy with someone in through the webcam, work pretty much just as well because they're getting the same treatment. They're getting the exact same treatment, uh, and so they work pretty well. Um, and there's actually there's a program called NC Step. Uh, which Dr. Saeed over in ECU psychiatry is kind of the leader of. Um, and this program uh, has people do telemedicine appointments with their psychiatrists to try to avoid hospitalizations um, and help them after hospitalization. So after someone's hospitalized for a major issue like schizophrenia or something like that. Um, you know, they need some aftercare, and that can be hard to find. And so to help folks by getting them telepsychiatry appointments can be helpful. Uh, And so that's what this what NC Step is all about. And so, um, you kind of uh, it's it's been shown to be pretty effective, uh, and in some ways more effective than in person stuff because people don't show up to in person stuff as easily, (laughs) especially when they have schizophrenia uh, and usually need some assistance with uh, getting places, especially around here. Um, So. So yeah, so, um, and, and same thing, like I did a lot of teletherapy and supervised a lot of teletherapy during the pandemic and stuff. Cause we, you know, we still had to train graduate students. People had more mental health problems than normal. Um, and so, you know, we had, we did a lot of telehealth. I really, you know, it has its pluses and minuses, um, I liked it a lot in some ways because I'm in the person's house, right? So if they need something to be like, oh, show me what this looks like and let's write a few things down on this. Like, how could you set up your your life here to remind you to do some of the exercises we talked about? Could you, where could you put your paper with this? Could you rearrange something to remind you? Could you, um, you know, for the, the, the OCD example, this isn't a real example, but for example, with OCD, you know, could you put the soap further away from the, um, sink since you have uh, a concern about the compulsion of washing your hands. Could you move the soap somewhere else? And so we could talk that through and maybe they could even walk me around if they have a laptop and put, you know, show show me that they're putting the soap in a different place. Um, so there's some advantages of it too, of things that you can't do in the session that I think are pretty cool that um, you can really take advantage of. Um, and Leverage for even better treatment sometimes, um, but the data say they they're about equivalent. Um, the shift toward things like texting therapy and getting therapy through text and um, and you know being able to switch therapists whenever you want and uh, all those sorts of things. I don't think those things are necessarily better for mental health. They don't. They're not as effective from, from a science standpoint. They're not as effective. Um, as getting the same thing you would get in an office through teletherapy. You're getting something different and some of those digital options just are not as effective. So I think that's how it changes patient care is some of these things that seem legitimate and seem and advertise like they're just as good or are just not. <laughs> and they're not including people who have um, a science-based orientation towards therapy either. Uh, and they're bringing in folks who are, um, naively trained, uh, and, and that sort of thing. But if they're working with the, you know, well-trained therapists, um, or, or well-trained psychiatrists and doing teletherapy, it it can work really well. Um, and I think at this point, it just depends on what that person's preference is. Like, did they feel they work better doing teletherapy and they, do they participate well and really get into it? Awesome. Then teletherapy is what they should do. If someone feels like they want to come in, they want to be in front of someone. Um, then that's probably what they should do. Uh, and I would argue that folks who I'm treating for social anxiety, um, agoraphobia, or things that we're getting out of the house and interacting with other people is kind of part of the treatment. I want them to come into my office. I don't want to facilitate them um, avoiding interacting with other people by staying at home. So, I mean, I'd still do what they wanted. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I would encourage them to, to come into the office. Good question. What I love about, and the COVID pandemic was pretty horrible, you know, a million people died. Um, But one of the things that I think are benefits of that is we all had to learn to be digital. We all had to learn to do digital health. Um, And so providers and patients. uh, And I think that's a good thing. I hope that that stays around because it all forced us to do something we probably should have learned to do a long time ago um, because the technology has been around for a while. Uh, And now I think we're more nimble and better providers for it. You know, I had a severe poison ivy rash because I'm not good at identifying it. Um, I think I'm good at it now, but, you know, it's a hard-learned hard, hard learned lesson. And I just did a, it was great. I just did a, um, a video consultation. I showed him my rash. I'm like, well, it's just here. It's not all over. I said, okay, well, then we'll do a cream instead of a steroid pill, and and I'll, I'll, I put it into your pharmacy. You just got to go get it. So there was no reason for that provider and me to spend all the time of – being seen in person and all that kind of stuff. It was just easy to do that. So I think we can become more efficient and better. I think we're still figuring out how to do that. And people are still figuring out like what they prefer and why. Great question. Um, so, another, okay. This is another DID, dissociative identity disorder question. Um, they're just, they okay. They say they're interested in it and they'd like to know more. I think we covered this one a lot. So um, lots of folks interested in this one. It's such a, a strange and interesting Uh, problem and disorder. So I'm glad that that folks are interested in in it, Um, even though they'll probably, if they become a therapist, they'll probably never see it. (laughs) Or maybe, uh, you know, one or two cases in their life unless they're really seeking it out. Uh, Okay, next question. How does having more than one mental disorder affect a person, Uh, i.e., severe depressive disorder, PTSD, generalized anxiety, ADD? Um, So, if you have all four of those, that's pretty rough. I know that's not the question this person's asking. Um, It's more challenging for folks with more than one mental health issue, but um, keep in mind people who meet criteria for one, about half of them meet criteria for another. A lot of times that's a substance use disorder because people with a substance use disorder. Are often often develop a substance use disorder trying to cope with another problem um, and then they to end up exacerbating each other and making each other worse so um, but folks with like uh, attention deficit uh, and depression have it you know a tougher time with treatment sometimes because uh, it can be a little difficult to, change your thinking when your thinking is kind of unruly um, and it can be difficult to change your life and the way you live and the way you organize yourself when you have a tendency to be less organized, if that's the particular flavor of ADHD that the person's experiencing. Um, so there are challenges. Um, I've, I've treated a lot of people with ADHD and something else uh, very well. Uh, it just, you know, sometimes it takes a little more work um, on their part <laughs> uh, and a, a little more time, um, but, but people can get there. Um, but in terms of, you know, how does that affect a person here in treatment wise, it makes treatment more challenging and probably a longer course, um, but doable because you're trying to treat kind of two things at once. Um, and but in terms of how it affects a person, just from that person's perspective, it makes it more difficult. There's they can be synergistic. Uh, so, for example, if someone I, I gave an example of, you know, ADHD and depression, uh, let's say if someone has PTSD and depression. Uh, and let's say the PTSD kind of caused the depression right because the PTSD came first, person had a traumatic event they were you know their body and, and mind responded in the way that bodies and minds do to trauma. Uh, but for this person that really stuck around um, and they they haven't been able to recover from it and that can lead to you know that desire to avoid other people, especially if they are some kind of way reminding them of the trauma. Um, that can cause them to, um, uh, develop depression, right? Uh, to be isolated and, and feel like they can't do what they want to do and be who they want to be and cause them to develop depression. So that's, in that case, having more than one disorder is due to kind of a progression of uh, of events from untreated PTSD, unaddressed PTSD. Um, so it, it's worse, generally, if people are going to have more than one thing. that 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 makes it more difficult for them in terms of their day-to-day experience because they're dealing with um, multiple issues and multiple problems uh, now for that person I just described though I would treat PTSD I wouldn't even worry about depression I would really focus on treating PTSD and then once we got that under control see where the depression's at because if PTSD caused depression we get rid of PTSD there's less driving that depression there's probably still going to be some around because some of it is is kind of maintaining itself but it, it will be a heck of a lot easier to treat so I would go full on PTSD treatment first Um, Which would involve some like spending time with other people and being less avoidant of of fearful things and doing more of the things that they care about as well. So there would be pieces of it that treat depression, but really focus on the PTSD. Uh, And I would wager that there's a good chunk less depression once they've had some success um, managing and treating PTSD for themselves. Uh, And then we just mop up whatever's left. I go to treatment every time because that's the part that excites me uh, is helping people overcome mental health issues because it can just be it can feel so bad just reading about it and what causes it and where it comes from what it's like but there's so we have so many effective treatments um, none of them are easy for someone someone to do but there are so many effective treatments I just I hate to to hear that people suffer for so long um, without knowing that there's help out there and 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 that they can get so. Not to say it's easy to get, but (laughs) that it's out there. So last question. I have read the amount of friends you have can have an effect on your mental health. Is it quality over quantity or is there a reason that this can be true? Um, You know, I think it's amount of friends does have an influence but it's like up to a certain amount so and that can vary from person to person i think any research that shows that the amount of friends is like there's a correlation between amount of friends and how good your mental health is there's probably a cut off in amount of friends like like after a certain number the increase in mental health for having more friends is pretty low but going from like one to two to three to four that's probably a big increase in mental health, but then like 5, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 15, 30, there's probably not a big increase from 5 to 30, but probably going up to 5. Now, again, I've made up those numbers just to give you an example of how this might be a curvilinear relationship, so do not quote me on that. I'm not quoting any specific literature, um, but my understanding of the social support research is that you do want to have a wide enough social network that you have available friends and family and loved ones um, to support you and to and be to be supported by and to support um, that there's people available all the time right not not one one friend can't satisfy all of our needs you know uh one like a romantic partner for example can't always satisfy all of our needs like that's why we have other friends that have other interests that may not be um, things that our romantic partner has or other perspectives that we'd like to hear sometimes um, so that is why um that more friends is better probably to a point. And again, I think, you know, I don't know what the research says in terms of what that, if there is a magic number, but I think for each of us, we have somewhere around that kind of magic number. Some of us are going to prefer a small number of friendships that, um, that we maintain pretty strongly, right? We spend a lot of time together. We have a deep, close relationships. Some people are going to prefer, um, that plus having more and a higher number of casual friends that they see less often and have less deep relationships with. Um, some people are going to prefer, you know, a whole lot of, um, w- you know, different friends. As some are just like just weird in every different way that someone can be weird and just all these different people that they can hang out with all the time. So everyone's preferences are different. So there is a matching on that. But I think there is a, there is a, probably a minimum number for most folks, that's going to be good for them. And that is probably like, you know, more than five, (laughs) I would guess. (laughs) Um, That way, you know, and there's some logistical pieces to that where if some of your friends aren't available, or they're going through their own shit, they can't, they're not in a good place to be supportive to you. And so a lot of social support, you know, a lot of the reason that the amount of friends is important to mental health is social support, right? Um, So you want to have be able to have people that are available. Um, and the other part is that reciprocity of it too. Like supporting others is something that is good for our mental health. It makes us feel part of a family and a unit. It brings us closer together. Um, so there's a lot of good pieces to that too. And so we, if, if we have you know a smaller number of friends, we're less likely to have all of those needs being met by our friend group. So uh, that's that would be my guess about why that literature kind of um, ends up that way or why that statement is that Um, that more friends are better for your mental health. But that doesn't mean collect them more and more and more. Um, It just means, like, make sure you have a support network that you can support and be supported by and that you're getting all your needs met. So... All right, that's all of them. Those are all my anonymous questions. I hope to do another one of these in a few weeks um, with some more fresh anonymous questions that'll be from later in the semester. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, what kind of questions people have from my class. So I hope that you listeners enjoyed this. Uh, I always enjoy the questions that folks ask. Uh, they have a little different flavor every year, and there's always some ones that kind of throw me for a loop that I really just kind of enjoy the challenge of going through. So hope everyone enjoyed listening. Um, and don't forget to do healthy, be healthy, and that behavior is medicine.